Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. All right, so we're we're in the Beatitudes. I've uh, entitled this Designed for Happiness. We talked a little bit at the beginning how God has designed us, and it's not the happiness that we often um, uh, think about in human uh, in human ways, but it's it's the way God designed us to live and to act and to to be. And so we're looking at each of these uh, beatitudes, and we're on blessed are the merciful tonight. That's in verse 7, if I remember right. I can't even turn my Bible there. Um, Very simply, let's see, that's chapter 12. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Very short, but it's a very deep uh, subject. When we've come to this particular beatitude, uh, I think there's a definite shift in, you could say, in position almost. Um, they each beatitude is built on one another. They're not separate and that we can take a look at it and say, well, I like merciful, but I don't like pure in heart, or I'm not pure in heart, but I am a peacemaker and, and so on. But they're, they're built on each other. Uh, you, you can't have one without the others. Um, I think they're tightly linked and I also see them increasing in intensity. And so this particular one, particular one, uh, uh, I felt the intensity of it more than the others. And But then I was thinking, well, but I felt that intensity when I was on meek. <laughs> but it's, just, it's this increasing uh, tendency. And I don't want to say uh, more difficult. I don't think that that's a good way to describe it. Uh, we, it's, it's a, it's the best word I can think of is intense. We, we have one beatitude and then we add another and then we add another. And so we're feeling this increased, uh, tense, uh, intensity that comes from each one and, and complexity is another word. It becomes more complex as we add one upon the other. Uh, there's uh, uh, energy that is expressed that makes the whole of them deeper and uh, you could say of a, of a more intense radiance as we add one upon the other. And I think it, it may even be leading, this is just a thought that I had this week, it may be leading to verse 14 where it says, you are the light of the world, all right? So we're heading toward that, and it's as if the culmination of each of these Beatitudes is, um, in, is increasing the brightness of that light. As we go into the poor in spirit, the light turns on, and morning it becomes a little bit more bright, and the meekness, it increases, and so this this light of the world begins to shine brightly when we come to the end of the Beatitudes. Um, The first two, poor in spirit and mourn, are obvious 
uh, emptying of ourselves. We're definitely emptying of ourselves. We compare ourselves not to others. We're comparing ourselves with God. And the first thing we see is our own sinfulness. We see our sinfulness in poor in spirit. There's no pride left within ourselves when we compare ourselves to God. And so we then we could say we mourn or we repent is another way we could say that. Uh, and then when we get to the third, I, I see in my concrete thinking a slight turn. We're not completely turned, but we're beginning to turn a little bit. It's a slight turn in meekness because meekness is a power word. And one thing I tried to emphasize when we looked at that is this word meek, and, and when we look at merciful tonight, it's the same thing. I think in our English or American or our Western, I'm not sure where it is, uh, thinking those, we, those words are a little bit soft. Meekness, you know, we, it's almost like you're being sweet. You know, sweet is a, not, it's a good word, right? It's okay to be sweet. Um, he's a sweet boy. But it's but a soft, you know what I'm saying? And I told Julie and my mother at my funeral, please don't say he was a sweet man. <laughs> uh, it's that's that's okay. It's, and there's a place to be sweet. There's a, there's a place to be soft. But that I don't think should characterize our lives. Now, meekness says, okay, he was a meek person. That's fine. If you understand the 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 definition of that word, there's strength in that word. Uh, so we have to remove those thoughts of weaknesses that we associate associated with the word. When we talk about um, meekness, there's this balance of gentle strength that comes into our lives when we when we empty ourselves of ourselves. That's that's what has been happening. We're emptying ourselves of ourselves, and we come to this point of meekness. And this there's a power associated with that because meekness is essentially. I'm trusting my. I'm trusting in God. I'm trusting in Christ, and I'm entrusting myself to Him. Do you, do do we understand a little bit of the difference? When I trust, it's like, okay, what what do you want me to do? I trust you. When I entrust, I'm jumping into His arms. <laughs> you know, I you know it, it, it's like the father who's you know telling the the son who's up up on a ladder, just jump. Do, do you trust me? He says, yes, I trust you. You know, okay, jump. Well, you don't entrust until you actually do the jumping. And so it's a showing that trust. And so that's what meekness is, is it's entrusting myself to God and trusting him. And then there's a power that comes from that trust and entrusting as we turn ourselves over to him. And we're turning ourselves not abstractly, but we're turning ourselves in uh, the circumstances of our lives into his care. And so meekness is saying this particular situation that I'm in right now, uh, this struggle that I am facing right now, whatever it might be, I trust him and I entrust myself. I don't have to be the one working this out and making it happen, but I entrust myself to him. And, and in that entrusting, there's things I do, of course, but I know the whole burden isn't on me. I, I have to respond to his direction, of course, but it's like where, where you lead, I will follow. That, that's really meekness. 
And there's uh, this marvelous power and strength that comes over us when you realize I'm not in control. (laughs) We can relax. I'm not in control. God's in control. And if God's in control, where's the power? Well, it's it's in God. And I can relax in that and just say, fine, uh, you know, just God's going to make this happen the way he wants to make it happen, not the way I want it to happen. And so it may not work out the way I want, but who wants it to work out the way I want it to work out? Because then I'm not helpless. I'm the one doing the work. And so I just relax in him and and let him work with me. Um, I cooperate with him. That doesn't mean I sit around and do nothing. I do cooperate. I let him have his way with me, His do his work in me, his will in me as I respond to his his direction where in and there's different ways we do that uh but then we get to this point where okay we've made a little turn this emptying three three times we've just emptied ourselves into god's care and the result of that is hunger we now now we're hungry just like if you don't eat for a day, you'll be hungry. Or, you know, we sleep through the night. We don't, most of us don't eat. We don't wake up and eat at night. Maybe some of you do, don't confess. But, you know, <laughs> you just sleep through the night. And then when you wake up, you have what you call the break fast. You break your fast, your evening fast, your nightly fast. So that's when you eat. And why do you eat in the morning? Well, because you're hungry. You haven't eaten in eight hours or 10 hours or whatever it is. And so you you empty yourself, you're naturally hungry. And if we empty ourselves uh, spiritually, we're going to be hungry also. And as we talked about that, we talked about this as a longing for God that can be described as a a starving for God or a thirsting, a parched, being parched for God. And it isn't that we long to find out what the right rules are. Now, I think that's where our, where our tendency always is. What, what's the rules? What do I need to do? Tell me just what to do here. But it's a longing uh, for a right relationship with God. That's where the longing is. And you think about it. Think about it in your own life. What do you long for spiritually? Do you long for 10 rules to follow? Do you long for, just give me the list, even though we say that sometimes, or do you long for a relationship with God? Do you long for the, you know, when you read those passages that say that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, boldly to God. And we sit there and go, oh, and I've had some people say, I just, oh, man, that I don't, I can't see myself doing that. Okay, but do you long to boldly walk into God's presence. And we say, yeah, I, I, I do. I, I, I want that. Or do you just want God to send you a telegram or a text? We don't have telegrams anymore. A text that says, do these five things. Keep these five rules, and then you can come into my presence. And we'd say, well, you know, I, I really don't want that. We want this relationship with God. And and when we do this, this, this longing is, is I'm longing for what Adam lost in the garden. We we read about Adam and Eve and the walking with God and they have this perfect relationship. And and we we have thoughts about well what was the world like? I mean what we I was talking to a young man not long ago about 
what paradise, what what things might have been like before the before the fall. And part of our thing is, would, would you get hurt? I mean, you, would you trip? Uh, if you came to the edge of a cliff and you fell off, would you get hurt? There was no death? Or would you just kind of float down? Or, you know, you start thinking of all these things. What, what would that have been like? And what would have been like to talk and walk with God? And so we long for this. This is what we're longing for. I, I want that this, what the first John talks about, this communion and this fellowship with God. That's what I long for is a relationship, a communion, a fellowship, not a, not a set of rules to follow. And because of this walk that I have, then I know the right thing. Then I start learning the right things to do. And so the, the list of things to do and don't isn't the first thing we do. The relationship, the right relationship with God is the first thing. And when we're in a right relationship with God, then I want to do the right thing. It, it's, it's a desire to do the right thing. Uh, in marriage, what if, what if Julie gave me a list, um, you know, uh, you will show your love for me by completing these 10 tasks. Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, we we just you know that that's not our that's not a, you know we want to you know we we want to have the loving relationship and then when we see something that needs to be done or we know something that pleases the other person, then we do it out of love, not because always oh, want is on the list. And so there's sometimes where Julia will ask me to do something and and I've already thought of, I'm gonna I'm. I'm plan in my mind, I'm going to do whatever it is. And she said, would you mind doing this? And I go, ah, I wish you wouldn't have asked me because I was planning on, I was already had, I already wanted to do it. And now, now it's like, uh, you, since you asked me, it's, I've, I've got to do it, you know, or, but it's so much nicer to do it. And she said, oh, I was going to ask you to do that. Thank you for doing it. You see the difference and the same thing with God. We, it's the relationship that's primary and because that relationship is so important, I want to find out, and Ephesians says this, I want to find out what pleases God. Find out what pleases God. Find out what God's will is. And so over also in Ephesians chapter 4, um, the NIV says, we, uh, I urge you to live worthy of your calling. But the word there literally is, I urge you to walk uh, worthy of your calling. And the idea is a literal walking with God. And there's several places that, that the Bible talks about your walk with God or walk with the Lord. Um, and so it is a that relationship of being with and sharing and fellowship and communion and friendship and all, all those good words that we uh, think about. And so when we come into this, uh, this section on merciful, uh, as I have been applying it to myself this week, I've been like, oh, man, this is uncomfortable. All right. And so and it's not that I, I have a list of, uh, you know, what, are, what is it? And we're going to look at some things that, that show our, how we put this into practice in a moment. But, we're, but the, the, the point is, it's hard. It's if it was just a, a rule in some ways. In some ways, merciful will be easier if it was just a rule. You are merciful if you do one, two, or three. Mm, I can do that. All right, fine. But every situation, every relationship, every 
um, uh, uh, stress, every conflict, every whatever that I'm involved in is I have to apply this merciful in a way toward that particular situation and that particular person is very difficult. And so when we're talking about uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and we're talking about a relationship there, if you remember, I said, is it right to go to church? And we're all like, well, yeah, but really sometimes it's not right. And you go, oh, well, most of the time it is. But, you know, if there's someone who is sick, in fact, I'll give an illustration here in a moment when I get to a more appropriate place where I know two ladies who missed a Sunday morning assembly. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. But there's a reason to, but you, you have to look at the situation and say, what's the right thing to do here? And sometimes the right thing isn't what the, the rules say. <laughs> we'll look at that in a moment. The word righteousness was a covenant word. We talked about that. It, it talks about this relationship. Covenant is a relationship. And this word mercy is too. It's a very strong covenant word. And, and so as I looked at this particular blessed or the merciful, I said, I, we're not being eased into this. I, I wish I, in, in one way, it's almost like I was saying, well, Jesus just kind of eased me into this. But he just he pushed me in the deep end. I mean, you know, blessed, you know, like, oh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah, I'm, I, 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 I have nothing. Yeah, I get that. Blessed are those who mourn. Yeah, God, I, I'm just, I repent. I have nothing. Blessed are the meek. I totally entrust myself to you. Yes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Yeah, yeah, I want a relationship with you. All right. Then treat other, other people mercifully. Oh, come on. That's hard. <laughs> I mean, it's like. You know, I'm like, it's all about me. And like, yeah, I got nothing. I got nothing. Yes, I want a relationship with you. Yes. And God says, all right, now deal with people. And I'm like, can't you go a little bit slower? So it's kind of, it's kind of what we're getting just pushed into this merciful is, is a big, big thing here. Um, it's, it's a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. In fact, you can, you can describe the covenant relationship with God. And we're going to look at this in the Old Testament and the New Testament in one word. Well, you can do it several one words, but one word, it would be the word mercy. Uh, it's interesting. It is not, it's something that God extends to us, but we do not extend this back to God. We need God's mercy, but does God need us to extend mercy to him? No. We need God's mercy, but then we extend it to other people. All right. So it's, it's not... It's not me and God here. It's now God is saying, okay, now that you've emptied yourself of you, which is very important, now I want you to be merciful to others. And the only way I can be merciful to others is if I realize what a jerk I am. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. If I don't realize how much I need mercy, then it's going to be very difficult for me to extend that to others. When someone treats me wrong and is a jerk to me, I need to remember what a jerk I am to others. And that's how I can extend that. We'll look at this together. Mercy, blessed are the merciful. The first thing, as we said, all these are characteristics of Christ. All these show Jesus. Uh, Jesus did not sometimes have mercy and sometimes didn't have mercy. Jesus was a merciful, his, his life was a life of perfect mercy all throughout his life. 
And because we live in him, it's our character. We've talked about this in each one. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and we are in him, and so we fulfill the law perfectly. Romans 8, verse, I was looking for a response because I've said it every week, four, all right? One week I said 14, but it's four, all right? So the the law has has been met fully in us through him. Uh, and so this first, what I call this first layer of reality is that we live in this mercy. We, we are merciful because we are in Christ. And then at the same time, we are becoming, learning how to become more merciful. That's that second layer of reality. This is what we are, and this is what we are becoming. And I hope that's not confusing. I know everyone kind of, sometimes I get kind of blank stares when I talk about this, but I think we can understand it. You, you, when you're married, you are married, but you're learning how to be married at the same time, right? There's a process of learning. Like when you first get married, you think you know it all. And then after about a month ago, I don't know nothing. All right. <laughs> and that's even wrong English. And that's okay. Cause it's like double negatives there. Um, but that's true. And so there's this process of I am and I am becoming right. And so I remember looking at Janice, her teacher. I, I taught school for four years. The first day that I taught, I knew nothing. And I was totally inadequate as a teacher. And the only thing that saved me was I remembered, I know more than these kids. And they don't know that I don't know. If I just pretend, <laughs> that's all I have to do. And so I was a teacher, but I was becoming a teacher. All right. So I was teacher, but I was learning how to become a teacher. And so you are merciful, but you're learning mercy at the same time. It's both. You are poor in spirit, but you're learning that every day. And so it's this both that are happening at the same time. Um, because we experience this mercy, we will be able to extend that mercy to others. So we, we need to look at what, what does this mean? Mercy, number one, there's no mercy without misery. There had the, the word is just it's a, it, it, it's attached to that, and I'll show you that in many ways. Um, only the miserable need mercy, or at least only the, the only the ones who know they're miserable need mercy or will ask for mercy. So over in Matthew chapter nine, there's just one place, verse 27. There's a couple of blind men, and they uh, they hear Jesus is coming, and they go out to him. They say, hey, say, you know it, have mercy on me. You know, son of David, have mercy on us. And there's several places in the Bible where people approach Jesus who were miserable in their blindness and their leprosy and their, you know, different ways. And so they recognize it's, it, that, that uh, the misery in their life. And so they called out for mercy. And we will only ask for mercy if we realize our helplessness, if we realize our misery. You won't be asking God for mercy unless you feel miserable unless you know there's something wrong, something is not right here. And that, again, brings us back to that first uh, beatitude. It's the realization of our helplessness. We have this sinful condition uh, where we, we, we can't do anything about it. And maybe some of you here, and I think all of us to maybe not saying these exact words, but we said these in a way, when we came to God, we were looking for mercy, weren't we? You're like, Lord, have mercy on me. And some of us grew up in good Christian homes, 
And even the best of us in that sense, we still knew we needed God's mercy. No one comes to God saying, I'm such a good person. I was raised in a good Christian home, and God needs some good Christian people raised in good Christian home. I'm sure glad you have me, God. No one does that. Everyone comes to him saying, I got nothing. And then those, some people are in literal misery when they come to God. They have been living such a degraded lifestyle of sin for so long that they're just, they, in many ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually, they feel the misery, maybe in a, in a, even a greater degree, but we all do that. So mercy from the giver's point of view, let's look at that first. So mercy coming from God, from the giver's point of God, uh, point of view, it begins with seeing a need. And it's, when you extend mercy, it's the same thing with you too. Uh, you see a need, and then you have a sense of pity uh, or compassion. And these words are very closely related, but they're not the, the exact same thing, but they happen when you have mercy. And so sometimes I've been a little bit accused of being a, a logical person and less emotional and all this. And that is true. <laughs> uh, I, I it, well, I won't go into detail on that, but but it is true. I'm less emotional and less uh, compassionate, but that's no excuse for me not to be compassionate, all right, and not to have mercy. And we're going to look at some ways to do that in a moment, as I said. But it is an, it is an emotion, or it is expressed in an emotion, and it's okay to have emotions. Uh, I'm not Spock, but I but I tend that direction. My, you know, kind of go that direction. But the but mercy sees a need, and something happens in our heart, in our emotions that stir us. All right, that's that's what's happening from a from the giver's point of view. Uh, it doesn't stop there though. It then propels you into doing something. It's not really mercy until you do something. You can have compassion and not really do something, but mercy compels you to do something. Uh, it's an act. There's, a, there's an action that is taking place here. It's the ability to see the uh, situation from the other person's viewpoint. It, it's to get into their shoes, to try to understand what they're thinking and feeling. And I know we can't do this you know, perfectly, but we can't. We do this all the time where we're trying to listen and hear and feel from that other person's uh, viewpoint. So mercy has to do something. It's more than a bless your heart, all right? It is bless your heart, but then it's finding a way to actually bless their heart, all right? So it is, it is that feeling of, oh, bless their hearts, yeah. But then it, it's a movement to, okay, and, and I'm going to do this to bless their hearts, uh, and Jesus did that when he healed people. But this is something that propels us to actually, and what can I do? What can I do in this situation? Another way of saying it, it's grace in action. Mercy is grace in action. Mercy is not a soft word, just like meekness is not a soft word. There's great strength behind it. It doesn't look at sin and make excuses for it. Uh, it's not tolerant of sin, uh, in the sense of just turning a, a blind eye toward it. It's not saying, well, I'll have mercy on them. They, you know, I understand, you know, that person can do that. Um, it's not 
kind or loving in the wrong way. It's not being kind or being loving in the wrong way by allowing sin or evil to continue. It's not saying it's okay to sin. That's not mercy. Uh, Grace tends to deal kind of big picture, uh, like with the pardon of sin, while mercy puts that pardon into action and says, but they need relief in this area. So grace is like big, big picture, and it's a pardoning pardoning of sin, but mercy is going to that one particular area where you are experiencing mercy, um, misery, and saying, what can I do to fix that? Uh, Grace deals with sin as a whole, the sinfulness of the person. Mercy deals with that particular pain of the sin. And grace is the free forgiveness of sin, while mercy deals with the result of that sin. And so it's working with the distress. Someone is in distress, and I can, I can extend grace, but when I extend mercy, I'm, I'm, I'm working on that distress, that pain, that misery that the sin caused. So we see a little bit of a difference there. Now, to help us understand a little bit more, I want to go into mercy as a covenant relationship. And we saw that, and as I mentioned already, with the hunger and thirst after righteousness is that we're desiring a relationship, a right relationship with God, a righteous relationship with God. It doesn't begin, righteousness doesn't begin by doing right things. It begins by having that right relationship with God, and then that leads us to doing right things. Right, it's going to it's going going to get there, but it doesn't begin there. We it leads us to do the right things. Um, it it makes judgments based on the circumstances and the situation and what God would do. What what does God want me to do in this particular circumstance? And so we know this in raising children. There isn't one set way of raising children, right? Have you, have you ever, you know, done something with your child and then you said, well, okay, because you did this, this is your punishment. And the next time they might have done something very similar, but you changed, you said, no, in this circumstance, we're going to do this. You kind of change something. Or with another child, they said, well, you beat me half to death and all you did was send them to their room. Well, yeah, and and both were appropriate for this, maybe for that situation. Uh, And so righteousness isn't, well, the four ways to raise a child. It's like this child has their own particular needs and their own particular particular response. And so I need to deal with them in their own particular way. And it's the right way. So that's where the relationship uh, comes in. Um, It's this walking with God pleasing the Lord. And so mercy is also in the same kind of category. It's a relationship word. Uh, It doesn't start with having pity on someone and doing something. That's not where it starts. It begins with a relationship, begins with your covenant relationship with God. I'm living in a covenant, and a covenant is an oath agreement with God. It is a blood agreement with God. He supplied the blood, Jesus, and it's a death agreement with God. So it's a very, very serious agreement with God. And I'm going to live in this covenant of mercy, and then I'm going to learn how to extend this to other people. Uh, the, the Old Testament word in 
I you know read it in Hebrew. I'm not I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all, but I've seen it different ways. But Hesed is the way that it looks like to me when I when I read it. Uh, it is a very rich word. Okay, so this word, when you look in the Old Testament, all right, blessed are the merciful. There's a Greek word there. When they when the word has said in the Old Testament was used, this word mercy in the Greek translate was the word they translated. So that's why th- this is the connection. I don't even think I made sense there. So the Greek word. Elios, blessed are the merciful. When they, when the Greeks, when they, when they, when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to the word Hesed, they used the word Elios. All right, Elios, Elios, Elio. That's a verb form. <laughs> so, so epsilon lambda epsilon. Omega Sigma, <laughs> or something like that. So anyway, this is so this word is tied to the Greek word. All right. So I want to look at this this word and from uh, Mounts' uh, complete expository dictionary. It says his said is one of the richest, most theologically insightful terms in the Old Testament. And so if you can go through all the words, find out which words in your English were translated by this, uh, from this word, you'll, you'll find a richness in this word. Uh, it's very, very deep. Uh, it means it's hard to, the reason it's deep is hard to translate. Well, how do you translate it? It's translated, it, it's, it means kindness, loyalty, mercy, and love. It means them all. doesn't just mean one of them. But when you translate it, you have to choose one word, right? You can't choose all of the words, but the, this word encompasses every one of these words. And so some translations say things like this. Do I have it here? There you go. Loving kindness, uh, steadfast love, uh, loyal love, covenant faithfulness, unfailing love. So the translators are trying to help us understand this word has said when, when it comes to it. And they'll say things like loyal love. So there's a loyalty here, uh, a strong loyalty from God. He's loyal to you. And it's love and it's a faithfulness and it's unfailing. It doesn't end. It's steadfast. It's strong. Uh, it's a, a loving kindness. And so you have all these things uh, when we see this word mercy or loving kindness or steadfast love, we have to think in a new way. We can't just have one word. We just can't say mercy or can't say just uh, loving kindness. It means all these things. And so much of the Old Testament is God staying faithful to his covenant. He said, I am. I made a covenant with Abraham, and I'm not going to back out on it. God is faithful. He's strong in this. And the Israelites just broke it over and over and over and over. They're just continually breaking the covenant with God. And the whole time, God is not saying, all right, well, you broke covenant. I'm done with you. But he kept coming back and and sending prophets and teachers and and this. I'm doing everything he could to restore that relationship. Um, And so this is why God said, we have to have a better covenant. 
we have to have a better covenant than this one. And it came through Jesus. And you read through Hebrews, and it's just over and over and over the better covenant with Jesus. And the reason is because in our human nature, we are by nature, by human nature, covenant breakers. How many of us have not kept our word in little ways, in big ways? Oh, man, if you have grandchildren or children, they let you know. Well, you said, and I've gotten to the point where I just say, well, I must have lost my mind when I said that <laughs> because I don't remember saying that at all. But they, you said. And so, but there's something in our human nature that we can't even remember what we've said. We can't keep these covenants with each other. It's, it's difficult. And so what happened is God made the perfect covenant in Christ or through Christ. And that's why when we live in Christ, we're living in the perfect covenant. We're not covenant breakers anymore. See, humanly, uh, Israel was in a human relationship and they were continual covenant breakers. If you are in Christ, here's some good news. You are no longer a covenant breaker. And you say, well, but, but I do. So. Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you are not a covenant breaker. And now you're going to learn how not to break the covenant. You see the paradox? The same thing. Over and over, you are poor in spirit and you're learning how to be poor in spirit. You're meek and you're learning how to be meek. And you're mer you are mercy and you're learning how to be merciful. You are in a, you are not a covenant breaker and you're learning how not to be a covenant breaker. And so the perfection of this covenant is we're living in Christ and he has fulfilled that covenant. And so we're living in the perfect covenant now. Um, so the Old Testament is always talking about bringing people back into the covenant that broken, the Israelites have broken covenant. And so now it is, you, you look at these Old Testament scriptures that are talking about God bringing them back. And it's not talking about bringing the physical Israel back into a covenant, but it's talking about us in the spirit. We are spiritual Israel and we are now in this covenant. This longing that God had to bring us back has been accomplished in Christ. There's several passages. We're going to just spend a little time. We may not have time for all these, um, but you can read them. And there's so many more. You won't, won't believe how many I left out. But I had to get to Isaiah 54. We've been in this little section of Isaiah where we've seen parallels um, between all the Beatitudes. And here's one in Isaiah uh, 54, starting in verse 5 through 8. And just listen to the mercy, the loving kindness, this faithfulness, this loyal love of God in these verses. He says, for your maker is your husband. He's, saying, he's talking about this relation. That's a relationship. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandon you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, that's that word, has said. 
With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I think what he's talking about here is the rejection of physical Israel that that would not come back to him. And and he's saying, just for a moment, I I had to hide myself from you, but I'm bringing you back into spiritual Israel, into the, the permanent covenant. And everyone's welcome. The physical Israel is welcome into that. And the Gentiles both are welcome into that. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, we, we don't have time. Let me think. Which one can I go to? Let, let's look at Lamentation. Lamentation 3. That's after Jeremiah. All right. It's one of the shorter books that you always skip over when you're Trying to find it. You can't. It is. It is. It is full of mercy. Um, the one I'm going to read is verse 22 of uh, chapter 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. They are new every mo- uh, morning. Great is your faithfulness. And you see all these words together. This Because of your great love, the word great love there is that word. Because of your loyal love, because of your loving kindness, because of your steadfast love, we are not consumed. Your compassion, that's, that's that movement, uh, inward movement in his heart. Uh, they're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that applies uh, to us. Anyway, you can read the rest of those. We just don't have time to go to them. Uh, God's mercy is more than just a tender feeling toward us. It's a covenant. God said, I have made a covenant with these people. I am in a covenant called loving kindness. That's called mercy. And I am going to be loyal to that. Um, if it were just a, if it were just a compassionate feeling, if God just had a compassionate feeling toward us, we'd be tempted to think, have I exhausted his compassion? You've worked with people that they exhausted your compassion, right? Yeah, God is being, yeah, yeah, yeah. He is involved in feelings, but that, and that's my point. His, he goes beyond that, which is good news because if it was just the feeling, we might exhaust his feelings. And so let's look at some New Testament applications of that very thing. All right. So how quickly can I go through this? Let's go to Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. And I'm, I'm not going to have time to read these, of course. But first of all, mercy makes you slow to judge other people. So in Matthew chapter 12, the disciples and Jesus are going through a grain field on the Sabbath. They're hungry. They begin to pick heads of grain. And the Pharisees see this and they look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful. They're not keeping the rules. All right. And then he says, well, haven't you heard what David did when they were hungry? And he, he goes on to say they ate consecrated bread. And, um, and he says, or haven't you read in the law that the, on the Sabbath, the priests are supposed to do certain things, and, but they're innocent. They haven't broken them, even though they're doing these, they're working. And he says, um, I tell you, one is greater uh, than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. 
you would not have condemned the innocent. And so what mercy does, when we really grasp it, it helps us to slow down our judgment. How quick are we sometimes to see something we quickly judge it? Really quickly. And here he says, you know, if you, if you had really understood what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you wouldn't have been so quick to judge. So it slows down our judgment of others. So we, can, we in our, in our, in our uh, weakness, we can say, well, I understand why a person would do that because I did it. So it's okay for them to do it. That is not mercy. All right. Mercy is you see something going on here. And instead of just saying, well, that person, had, you know, just make it a quick snap judgment of them is take a, take a breath. Don't be so quick to judge. You might need to find out what the circumstances there to help them get out of that sin. All right. And we're going to get this in another scripture in just a moment. All right. You guys want to go till 830? All right. So stop asking questions. Stop asking. All right. All right. I'm trying to, I'm trying to end in 10 minutes here. All right. Thir- Luke 13. All right. In Luke 13, starting verse 10, uh, I, I, there's a crippled cripple woman. She comes into the synagogue. Jesus heals her. All right. Indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days and not the Sabbath. All right. And then the Lord answered him. You hypocrite. He was not nice. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his own donkey and out of the stall and leave it to give it water? Should not this woman, daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? And it says when he, when he said this, they were humiliated and everyone else was just happy. <laughs> they like, yeah, that's right. All right. But mercy doesn't condemn doesn't excuse self while condemning others. All right, this, this man basically was excusing himself. Yeah, it's okay for me to lead my animal to water. It's okay for me to do something, but it's not okay for you to do it. All right. You have to be real careful. And there's all that you, you think of your own examples in your own life, how sometimes you'll say, yeah, but if you, yeah, you, yeah, you shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, you, but I excuse myself for doing something similar. All right. Maybe you're never guilty of that. But I think we all are to a degree. Mercy doesn't do that. Mercy doesn't excuse me. Well, if you understood me, if you understood how tired I am, if you understood how much I work, if you understood this, then you wouldn't. But you don't need to be doing that. All right. So just these are things to think about. We don't have a long time. John chapter 8, the the, uh, sinful woman, the adulterous woman. You see, she, she had broken the law. We won't even go to that passage, but she had broken the law. She had committed adultery, caught in the very act. She was condemned, should be condemned to be stoned. And Jesus didn't, did not stone her. I see a lot of mercy being taken place, in my opinion, when he knelt down and started writing. See, all the attention was on that woman, and he brought it on himself when he went down in the dust. Everyone started looking at him saying, well, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Come on, give us an answer. I think the woman could have walked away. They would have never known it. And then he stands up and says, okay, whoever hasn't sinned, you cast the first stone. And boy, talking about intensity. And then he let them off the hook. 
because he got went back down to the ground and started writing. If he had st- sit there and stared at them, they might have someone might have picked up a stone or someone might uh, who knows what it would have happened. But he got them off the hook by going back down the ground and writing, and they're like, "Ooh, okay, I'm sneaking out of here." And they one by one all left until they got up and he said, "You know, well, where are your accusers?" And they're, well, they're not here. And then he said. I'm not going to condemn you either, but you go and don't do this anymore. Sin no more. So he was looking hard for a way to forgive her, not excusing her sin. And this is something that Jesus did in a perfect way that we do very imperfectly. He loved the sinner and hated the sin. We we have a hard time doing that because we often come across hating the sinner too, <laughs> or, or being aggravated with the sinner, uh, just being upset with the sinner. Jesus had something about him that we can learn from and grow in where he could condemn a sin and at the same time uh, accept that sinner. And people, sinners wanted to be around him. And that's this next story, uh, Mark chapter 9. Real interesting. Mercy sees people through God's eyes. That, that's where I think, that's where, where really comes down to it. How do we see people? Uh, The last one's in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. If I said Mark, I said the wrong thing. Matthew chapter 9, it says, as Jesus went from there, he saw, and this is very interesting, a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's book. No no one else saw Matthew, the, uh, uh, the man. They saw this person who collected taxes the tax collector, the terrible person, all right? He wasn't a man. Jesus saw a man. Everyone else saw someone they hated, a tax collector. And so he calls him. The people go to their house. They're eating together. And then these Pharisees come and say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is Jesus with all these people? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or you need to learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, and so Jesus is dealing with these people who are rotten people. They're, they're rotten people. They're sinners, and they know it. Some may to one degree greater than others, but these are undesirable people. In some way, they're really, really comfortable around Jesus, and yet he's not accepting their sinful behaviors. How he does that, I I really don't know totally, but he is seeing people through the eyes of God. That's what mercy is. And he told these other people, you go off and and think about this. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Start seeing people through the eyes of God. when we come to that point of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's tempting for us to look down our nose at people who haven't come to that point. Now think about this. We get to this point where we've emptied ourselves, we're empty ourselves, we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and we arrive at that point and we say, and you should be there too. Suddenly we're unmerciful. It's almost as if God is saying, look, when you empty yourself and you get to this point, that you're desiring this relationship with me. You're hungering and thirsting after it. Now, I want you to be merciful to others, not demanding of others. Uh, th- this is a time to extend mercy to other people. My, my dad 
um, t- told the story that when he, he, as a growing up, he, he smoked before he's a Christian, he stops smoking after that. And so he, it took him a long time to come to the conclusion in his mind that smoking was a sin. All right. It took him 20 years because for whatever reasons, I mean, they, they, what, they didn't really know it caused cancer and everything like that, but he was thinking about that. Well, we were in Fiji and the young boys during breaks from their Bible study would go down to the little shop down the road and buy a cigarette for two cents and smoke it. And so my dad was telling someone, you know, I finally, I finally come to the conclusion that's wrong and I'm going to take these boys and tell them, you know, that's a sin. And the man said to him, how long did it take you to come to that conclusion? And he said, oh, around 20 years. And he said, well, do you think, don't you think you should have enough grace to allow them time to come to that same decision? In other words, once he got to that point that it's a sin, he wanted to tell everyone else it's a sin. And he said, no, you need to be more merciful. Think about that. And so I think maybe that's what mercy is doing, is saying when we get to the point that, yes, I'm convicted that you need to be here on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night, and someone isn't, well, maybe we need to extend a little mercy there. Uh, mercy is doing whatever you can, whatever you can. Over here is we can't, and what my point here is you can't do everything. You cannot do everything. Over in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, we know the story. He bound this, you know, got this person and, you know, tended to their wounds and put him on his donkey and take, took him to the innkeeper. But look what he did. He did what he could, and then he turned him over to someone else. Mercy doesn't mean you have to do everything. Mercy means doing what you can do. Oh, I was going to tell you a story about two women. One's in the room right now. One's at home. The one that's at home is in my home. <laughs> she, she got a call one Sunday morning that a lady that she had been, was a Christian now, that she had studied the Bible with, had been, been a Christian, had been paralyzed, and Julie actually found her on the floor after a stroke, um, cared for, that she was in her bed, and it just, um, it was filthy. All right, there's, there's a condition it was filthy. So we rushed over there. I'm in, I'm in my sleeping shorts and T-shirt, and we're there. And it was not a pretty sight. My compassion <laughs> was um, not as deep as hers and Carla Campbell's. Carla came over. And they began dealing with this physical mess. And I think it was Carla that said, are you preaching today, Alan? And I said, yeah, I'm supposed to. (laughs) And she said, well, why don't you go ahead and, I mean, you obviously need to go change clothes. (laughs) You can't preach in your sleeping shorts and T-shirt. Why don't you go? We'll take care of this. And I was like, are you sure? Please say yes. <laughs> and she said yes. And they and they and and my point was mercy was saw a mess, a miserable mess, miserable mess. And it was in it was there's some endangering yourself. I mean, it's 
filth. And I, I can't remember. I think it seemed like they had Kroger bags on their hands or something, taking care of that. And that's mercy is saying, what can I do in that situation? And doing it. Now, I was willing to do what I was like, Carl, you just tell me what to do. Julia, tell me what to do. I'll do it. You know, I'll lift her. I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> but it's, it's, but there's, there's a certain point that's like, well, there's nothing else I can do. And someone else has to do it. And so mercy does go out, but we have to realize we're not, we're not perfect in our mercy. We can't, and even God, even Jesus, he couldn't minister to some of the Pharisees. They wouldn't listen to him. So there's a point that our mercy, yes, we have pity for them. We have compassion for them, but there's a door, there's a, there's a blockage there. But we shouldn't say, well, they won't. We, well, we need to try our best to get through that. And so if it's going to cost us time, it's going to cost us money, it's going to cost us extra effort, we need to do that. But once we get to the point that, that we don't know what else to do, it's okay to turn them over to someone else who has a greater ability. And so to me, this whole week, the great physician was prodding me. You know, he says here, the, the well don't need a doctor. Well, the great physician was prodding me, and he was saying, does that hurt, Alan? <laughs> does that hurt? Uh, does that make you feel uncomfortable? And the whole time, I'm like, yeah, that hurt. Yeah, that's making me feel uncomfortable. All right, what do I need to do in this area? And it's, and it's, it's not a list of rules. It's relationships. So I'm sitting there praying about situations and thoughts that came to my mind. and saying, what can I do? And sometimes what I can do is limited, and sometimes it's not. But that's what mercy is, is deciding what, what those things are that we can do. Let me end. We, we're, we always go three minutes over, sorry. He was surrounded and followed by enormous crowds. They had come from the province of Galilee, the ten cities around the lake, the capital city, Jerusalem, the province of Judea, and from the whole area on the east side of the Jordan. Having seen the throng and perceiving its effect, he ascended the mountain. Having sat down to seriously and emphatically teach, he was joined by the group called the followers or pupils. He opened his heart to them and taught them, and he did this many times, saying, Oh, how prosperous the beggarly destitute in spirit. They possess now and forever the kingdom of the heavens. Oh, how joyous the grief-stricken and the heartbroken, because they will have someone walking beside them, giving them exactly what they need. Oh, what delight those of gentle strength, people of steel, clothed in velvet. Their inheritance is everything under the sun. They have all things. Oh, how satisfied those starving and the continually parched for the righteousness of the relationship with God. They will be gorged and fattened with it. Oh, how merry the merciful. They shall live in the covenant of mercy. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.